Welcome to Trashy Divorces for yet another week. I'm Stacy. Hey, friends. I'm Alicia. Welcome back. Trashy D, yo. Do you have the world on a string, Alicia? Oh, gosh. Sitting on a rainbow. Aww. This week, we're going to continue the season of Frank Sinatra and all of the threads that spill from there. We definitely have the world on a string this week. The song, I've Got the World on a String, is a 1932 popular jazz song. It was composed by Harold Arlen. With Who also composed the music for Somewhere Over the Rainbow and The Wizard of Oz. Hmm. There you go. Interesting. Does he just have a thing for rainbows? Apparently. It's okay. a big deal. Lyrics by Ted Kohler. And it was written for the 21st edition of the Cotton Club series, which opened on October 23rd, 1932. The first of the Cotton Club Parades. So we're going to talk a little bit about this guy and my story this week. But the song, I've Got the World on a String, is originally introduced and recorded by Cab Calloway. We have that link on our website. Bing Crosby will later record it in 1936 with the Dorsey Brothers and their orchestra. This song is actually one of the first that Frank Sinatra records when he goes to Capitol Records in 1953. It's a lovely, lovely standard. So, y'all, in the Rat Pack, mm-hmm. we've talked about Frank. We've yes. talked about Peter Lawford. Yes. That's second in the Rat Pack. We wish we could talk about the third of the Rat Pack, <laughs> Joey Bishop, but y'all, legit. Boring. Least trashy dude ever. Boring individual. I mean, perfectly fine, <laughs> upstanding man. Joey Bishop was married 58 years. He doesn't drink. Like, Give us something, Joey. He's not the no. profile for us, but we do have two more left to we cover. We do. Two more Rat Packers left. Rat Packers. Stacy, this week you're bringing us the story of Rat Packer 4. I have the amazingly weird story of Dean Martin, who was an amazingly weird person. Or Dino Martini. Dino Martini. And you have... Oh, the talented Candyman... <laughs> Mr. Wonderful, more entertainment in one tiny body than you can imagine, the effervescent and delightful Sammy Davis Jr. Awesome. I mean, it's, yeah, he's great. It sounds like he lived in a garbage world, though, so that sucks. Garbage world. It's a hell of, we got some really good stories this <sighs> week. All right, so let's talk about Patreon real quick, and then we'll get right into these. On Patreon this week, we did follow up with a little bit more of Henry VIII's, like, all-star trashy divorces king, his treachery, and the execution of his elderly relative, Margaret Pohl, Countess of Salisbury. Make great stakes. <laughs> so, yeah, we also talked about Sinatra's mob ties and uh, the founding of the Rat Pack 2.0 in January of 1960 in Vegas. We had a ton of wonderful people join us this week on Patreon, and we did pull a little weird data this week. We did, yeah. We we have released 201 episodes over there. Mm-hmm. We it's, is... it's a lot of stuff. It's a lot. We have a lot of fun over there all week long. Who do we have in our magic mirror this week who is listening to 201 episodes of Trashy let's, Divorces? Let's, let's talk magic mirror. We would like to thank Colleen, Misery Root. Auburn P, Lisa W, Debbie H, Sarah C, Anna D, Rose F, Lynn N, Monica B, Don D, Brandy L, Lori S, Rachel K, Dottie B, Rachel H, Carissa S, Brandy N P, and Meg D. All right, we're sitting on this rainbow. You want to do this? Ah, uh, what a world, what a life. I love trash candy. <laughs> Let's go, go, go. We'll go, go, go now. 
Stacy, I feel like I'm doing something wrong by not having a cocktail in my hand before the story. It is ironic that we're dry Februarying while we cover. Dry February may not last this episode. <laughs> so, yeah, I've got Dean Martin uh, and uh, Rat Packer, and boy, really not a gem of a human when it came to family as we shall see really really and yet also he was like very he was in many ways he was a commendable family man it's it's a weird he's a weird guy complicated he's a complicated guy okay give me the trash candy cocktail on the rocks with a cattail (laughs) stirrer sure all right so i called this story dean martin lush for life i love it got a lush for life okay so uh (laughs) Dean Martin, of course, was one of the most beloved performers of the 20th century. Dino. He was an integral part of the swaggering coolness of the Rat Pack. While he played a lush on television, his personal life was less wild than you might think. I'm not sure that we would call him a serial monogamist, since I don't think he was actually that overwhelmingly attached to monogamy at any point in his life. Huh. But he would serially fall in love... And had three ex-wives to show for it. What? His most famous divorce, of course, did not happen in a marriage. It was the breakup of the legendary comedy duo Martin and Lewis that made headlines, broke hearts, and charted the course for the careers of two American icons. Whatever. Um, Tell us all the story. Go. Sure, sure. Okay, so uh, Dino Paul Crescetti came into the world on June 7th, 1917. He's a Gemini. Aw. In Steubenville, Ohio, his parents had immigrated, actually his father had immigrated from Italy not long before with help from his his uncles, Dean's uncles. Okay. Um, paid for teenager, brother. He became a barber. America's a land of dreams. It okay. Sure is. Little Dino was raised in a house where Italian was spoken, so when he shows up for kindergarten when he's five... Nope, he can't talk he to, can't. He, do, he doesn't speak English. This was an amazing thing to learn about Dean Martin. He, English. English is his second language. English is his second language. Oh, wow. It's, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, yeah, it was very weird. So there was some bullying, but he was a precocious and charming kid. And when he hit his teen years, he decided that life was a lot more exciting out of high school than in it. Dropped out in 10th grade. This is true of everyone in the Rat Pack. Is that correct? It absolutely nobody, is. Yeah. No, nobody. And to be clear, back then, I think you could, there were plenty of jobs that just didn't require. I don't know. It's just a different economy, different world. You could go on and have a respectable income earning life without a high school diploma back in the 40s. This crew got extraordinarily lucky without a high school diploma. Let's just put sure, it that but way. you know we had factories and all of that. Well, Let's you just... could be a singing star, or you could be a singing star. Come on, which is what little Dino wanted to become. So he drops out in tenth grade, kicks around Steubenville like you do during the Great Depression and. The Prohibition era. Oh, wow. So he, again, he's like 15. He's bootlegging liquor. He uh, <laughs> he spent like a few days. Seriously, government prohibition was the worst <laughs> idea on the planet. Yeah, he he tried to take a straight job. So he works 
in a steel mill for like a minute. It was very, very a hot minute. A hot minute. It was very, very hot, and he couldn't breathe. Oh, for so, real? Yeah. So he quit. Oh. So okay, he was. Yeah, <laughs> he was. Uh... Anyway, he dealt blackjack. He handled betting in a speakeasy, and uh, since he had a lovely singing voice that made some people suspect he might be a little wimpy, uh, he got into boxing. Oh. In 1936, he road tripped to California with a buddy, and he fell in love with Hollywood. Oh, like you do. So it turns out that Dean was a terrible boxer. Just, (laughs) just terrible. So he ends up with a broken nose. Oh, no. And this later would have to be surgically straightened. (gasps) Various scars on his body. He was too broke to buy the athletic tape that boxers would use to wrap their knuckles. So he routinely would break his knuckles. Oh, Dean. He, the skin split. So like every time he's punching oh, somebody, God. like it's his blood that he's leaving. Like, no, no, anyway, no, no. Um, yeah. And one of his pinky fingers became permanently disfigured from this constant abuse. Oh, my God. Weirdly, he did not stick with the boxing thing. Yes. Uh, And that was okay because, yeah, right, because by night he was doing his very best Perry Como impression under the stage name Dino Martini. No. Yeah, there was another singer with a, like, Nina Martini or something, and so he was trying to kind of capitalize on on that. Dino Martini? Dino Martini. You are not making dry February easy at (laughs) all. (laughs) By the early 40s, Sammy Watkins of the Sammy Watkins Orchestra, I think out of Cleveland, they brought Dino Martini on. And Sammy sits (laughs) him down. That's the best thing I've ever heard. Sammy sits him down and says, hey, Dino, what if you drop that eye on the end of Martini? You're just Dean Martin. And so Dean Martin, crooning in a rented tuxedo, was born. (laughs) (laughs) Ta-da! Around this time in 1941... Dean got married for the first time. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yay. To Betty Ann McDonald. She Betty was a, Ann. Yeah, she was a student from Pennsylvania. She was a lacrosse player. And she was one of five sisters. Her father was being relocated to Cleveland. He worked for a whiskey company. So, again, dry February is off to a... Why are you... <laughs> she meets Dean at the Hollanden Hotel, where I think, I think the idea is that dad she was with dad who was being relocated so they're at the hotel all of them together okay and uh dean was performing there so she meets him and that night she goes to see his show love is in the air it is she is very committed to him noticing her so when she walks down to the performance area she is wearing a giant red sombrero (laughs) Do you have her birthday? I don't. <laughs> I do not. Uh, just to make sure he noticed me, she would later say. I'd say that would do it. Mm, it did. Within weeks, 23-year-old Dean had taken her to meet his parents and then proposed. They went in Cleveland in October 1941. The next day, they hop on a bus for a six-week tour with the Sammy Watkins Band. That is fantastic. Yeah, it won't go well, but, you know. Dean was drafted into World War II after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, but he did his service in Akron, Ohio, which that's... 
Better Be- than a lot of places. Beats Normandy. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Um, he developed a double hernia while he was what? in the army. Uh-huh. So they kicked him out after a year. So like. Yikes. It's weird, right? Like. I mean, it's not weird. Like the the army doesn't want to pay for health care for a guy who can't go to into combat. <laughs> like, anyway, double hernia, yo. Mm-hmm. Ooh. So technically, he is a World War II veteran, but not in any exciting capacity. So the marriage to Betty would last to 1949 and produced four children. Wow. But it was not the happiest of marriages. Dean oh, was no. he was traveling constantly, and though he moved the family to New York City like in the mid 40s, he was increasingly called to the West Coast or was just on tour. I mean, he was just away a lot. And, you know, again, she went on tour with him when they first got married, but pretty soon she's having babies. That's Nancy and, Senior. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she's got, <laughs> soon she's got these four babies trailing around. And so when he leaves to go on tour, she packs up and heads back to Pennsylvania or to Ohio to stay with her family or his family to have help. Makes sense. Four sure. babies. Yeah, that's a Jeez. lot. So stressful times. Dean's daughter, Dina, wrote a book called Memories Are Made of This. And she recounts that by the time her mother was in her mid-20s, her hair had gone white. <gasps> oh, no. Yeah. She was lonely, under pressure. And when Dean would be home for a while, things would be okay at first. This is such a common story. And then they would just start fighting. Then, like, all of the... Yeah. Yeah. Like, after he's home for a couple of days, it's just cats and dogs. Mm. So, yeah, when when they met, he had been this handsome nobody. And now she felt very much like she was sharing her husband with the whole world. But honestly, he still was pretty much a handsome nobody in, in the scheme of things and what would come, what was to come. For sure. In spite of all this tension, though... Betty was instrumental in shaping the public persona of Dean Martin. English as a second language caused some issues for him. And and growing up around people who were learning English as adults, because when you learn a second language as an adult, like it's just never going to be as... I guess there are people who are really good at it, but for most of us... It's challenging. My Dutch sucks. Let's just be clear. (laughs) Okay. So in the early part of the marriage, he goes out to Hollywood to do some screen tests because he, you know, he's in love with Hollywood and he wants to be a big star and everything is awesome. But Dino Martini, come on. Dino Martini, but his English sucks. Ooh. Like it sucks. It sucks. So he comes home and he's, you know, ah, I'm never going to get to be a movie star now. And Betty's like, no, 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 no. Like, let's. Let's work Let's on practice. this. Right. Oh. So she sort of coaches him through like, no, does it's speech pathology school. <laughs> basically. Nice. Yeah. She does. She, you know, it's not them and those. It's them and those. It's he didn't use the final G on words that might be relevant to his career, like singing. <laughs> Part of Dean's laconic cooler than cool image came from the fact that he wasn't a fast talker. Like he... Just had that really relaxed air on stage. And that it wasn't because he was actually that laid back, although I think he was a pretty laid back guy on stage, but it was because speaking required actual mental work totally for him makes sense. throughout his life. Totally makes sense. Like his entire life. Yeah, it really this I was I I was excited to learn this weird fact about Dean Martin. <laughs> trashy divorces. Trashy divorces is so much fun. <sighs> So back to the struggles of the marriage, you know, he was still 
he was still a nobody. It didn't seem that way to Betty, but, and I think he had a strong sense that things were on the, uh, moving in the right direction. Like he was- Got the world on a string. He was going somewhere. For sure. But he wasn't there. He had financial problems. He declared bankruptcy at one point. He wanted to make it as a singer, but the airwaves were full of extremely talented and popular singers. You know, Sinatra, (laughs) Bing Crosby, like, yeah, so- He's working in clubs in New York, and he was frequently on a co-bill with a young comedian named Jerry Lewis, who had this very zany act where he would, like, lip-sync opera while changing clothes and making faces. It's very strange. It's very different. It's a different Mm -hmm. thing, Jerry Lewis. Yeah, we'll put a bunch of clips on the website. What's remarkable to me watching these clips now is that this was considered adult-appropriate humor at the time, because to me, it, it it looks like a kid's program. Well, you have this new medium, and what do you do with it? You don't know what you do with it until you throw it out there and you see what you do with it. Yeah. All right. So, yes, Jerry Lewis did Pioneer. Um, we were discussing... Zany. Zany's a good word for it. Uh, it's super physical. I don't know. I, I'll get into discussing it a bit. So, for the purposes of, of this act where he and Dean are, are meeting and getting to know each other, so he's lip-syncing opera... One night, Dean's bored while he's waiting for his turn. Jerry's on stage. And so he starts messing with the record player that's playing the operas that he's lip syncing. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Which, as you can imagine, infuriated Jerry at first. But then the audience is like is laughing. They love it. Yeah. So then it's Dean's turn. And so what does Jerry do? He puts on a waiter's jacket and starts throwing dishes and glasses on the floor while he's singing. <sighs> Oh, they became fast friends. Sure, it's <laughs> what it takes. Yep. A year later, when an Atlantic City nightclub owner named Skinny D'Amato, oh, the names back then, needed a comedy act to fill in at his 500 club, Jerry signs him up as Martin and Lewis. And uh, apparently didn't really explain to Dean that they were, this was a comedy set. Dean thought it was a singing set. Oh, and Jerry, like, explained to D'Amato, like, well, yeah, he is a singer, but, like, we we do stuff together, and it's There's funny. A it's a comedy set. And so, anyway, their first set didn't go well, and D'Amato comes up to him backstage and is like, I thought you said you do stuff together and it's funny. Like, you better make that happen. <laughs> So okay, here's the other thing. I don't know if you know this about Skinny D'Amato. Oh, I He's don't. a big friend of Frank Sinatra. Super is also in the mob. Okay. And when Frank Sinatra is down and out, we talked about this a little bit on Patreon last week. The mob are the only people who give him jobs. Skinny D'Amato will get Frank working anytime and every time. Interesting. Yes, they are BFFs. We haven't talked about Skinny D'Amato mm-hmm. yet on... The Wednesday series, but we're going to. Okay. Ah, uh, Spiderwebs. No, I went looking to see if he's related to Al D'Amato, the former senator from New York. And as far as I know, they're they're not. But they could be. Everybody's a cousin up there, right? Everybody's got a cousin in New York. <laughs> All right. So they go out for their second set. And that set changed comedy and both of their lives forever. Their act fused slapstick and improv and Dean's singing and Jerry's complete weirdness into something unpredictable, but very, very funny. I mean, if Skinny D'Amato tells you to fix it, you fix it. Yes. <laughs> That's just... 
they they did fix it. Uh, Jerry would later describe the setup as the sexy guy and the monkey, which I think is a very good description. I get it. Uh, it makes d- sense. Dean, it's worth noting that Dean's about 10 years older than Jerry. So there was this setup worked really well on a lot of levels. They're apparently the same height, but Jerry would stay kind of leaned over or cry. Like Jerry always let him be taller. There really, there was just a very cool power dynamic that they kind of artificially created between them. And I don't know if they meant to or not. I think some of that was just natural because Jerry also was basically in love with him. (laughs) This story just gets better and better. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, Dean was dapper and sophisticated. He was the straight man in the act and he had his own incredible comic timing. Jerry was absolutely unrestrained in the physicality of his comedy. He does these weird voices. He just, it's, I mean, it's zany. It's zany. They were cartoons, basically. They were performing, he in particular, as cartoons. Their first television appearance was the debut broadcast of The Ed Sullivan Show in 1948. Wow. And they went on to hire a then-unknown Norman Lear. Holy cat. To write jokes for them. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. And another writer named Ed Simmons, but I don't know if that... I feel like I should include that name. We are being assaulted by our pets today. Okay. All right. 1948, Dean moves the family to California. Like you do. Like you do. Like he's been dreaming of for years and years. 1949, Martin and Lewis signed with NBC Radio. Wow. Then launched the Martin and Lewis television show, also on NBC. Paramount signed them for the film My Friend Irma. Good times, right? It's all coming, all coming together. Yeah. Well, while his career was zooming into space, his marriage was collapsing. Oh. So Betty was struggling with the kids. I guess he worked long hours. There's a, a thing in uh, Dina's book that mentions the Dean would often come home and find that the kids had not been fed dinner. Oh, no. And so he... Like, the older kids have clear memories of um, fried egg sandwiches that he would make them. Oh, well, that was his thing. It was his favorite kind of sandwich. Anyway, I don't know if, I I don't know how, I think this may have actually been passive aggressive on her part. Like, you take care of the little monsters for a while, you know, that kind of thing. I'm not sure. So there obviously had always been rumors that Dean was unfaithful on the road, which I'm sure he was. And presumably Betty had either disregarded those or made her peace with it. But once they're all living together in Hollywood, Dean's cheating is harder to hide. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't really seem like he was trying that hard to hide it. He had an affair with actress June Allison, Mm. which uh, Betty discovered when she showed up in his dressing room (gasps) while he was on stage. And there was a telegram that Dean had sent to June that read, I'm still tingling. Oh. Okay, here's... Lush for lust. Here's a bit of awesome. Oh, no. Betty, telegraph in hand, walks out on stage to confront him. Nuh-uh. And these two are such adept improvisers that they treat it as part of the act. And so you've got... Dean is hiding behind Jerry, and, and like, the audience loved it. It was a great bit. And, like, by the end of it, Dean has, like, run out of the club entirely to laughter and cheers. <laughs> like, they made it work. Fun. I... So. Um... But was she wearing a red sombrero? <laughs> uh, 
So he ended the relationship with June Allison, but there was another one headed their way that would spell the end of the Dean and Betty marriage. February 1949, Dean had fallen all the way in love with a 20-year-old from Florida named Jeannie Bigger. He had met her at the Beachcomber Club, and she had taken to sending boxes of oranges to the Martin home, you know, (laughs) quote, from an admirer, the card would say. And uh, when Dean told Betty he was leaving her and the kids, he was leaving her for Jeannie. Well, and the oranges. God, now I want a screwdriver. (laughs) This is the worst. Uh, All right. I see that your resolve is strong for dry February. I'm going to make it to break. I'm pretty sure. Okay. It was the 1940s. And uh, despite the not feeding the kids dinner thing, Betty had been a super supportive wife for eight years while her husband got established in his career. Right? So at the time, a divorce would not be issued unless both spouses consented. And she refused. Oh. She was simply not going to let him Nancy Sr., I'm not going to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She kept thinking that he would come back. They had four kids together. They were Catholic. And the tabloids didn't even hint. I mean, there were there were editorials about how Dean Martin's career was going to blow up because he'd abandoned his family. So he's pulling the same thing Frank's doing about the same time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Interesting. Okay. Yep. But Dean's career continued to soar. Betty's mom and sister came to L.A. to help. And that was just sort of the setup for a while. The movie that Dean and Jerry were in, My Friend Irma, came out. It did great. But Betty was solid. Like, I am not going to divorce you until Dean comes over and is like, look, Jeannie's pregnant. (gasps) So, again, Catholic people. Oh. Betty decided that Jeannie having an abortion would be a bigger sin than she and Dean divorcing. Oh. So... You know, what do you do when you need a quickie divorce in 1949? You go to Nevada. You, you go to Las Vegas. Yeah, yeah. where everything's legal. She <laughs> she dropped the three youngest kids with, you know, grandma and aunt and headed to, headed to Vegas for six weeks to, get, to get residency. She there stayed at the Flamingo. Super nice. Which had just opened. And she got her freak on doing the usual Vegas things, drinking, dancing, gambling, carousing. You go, Betty. It's your birthday. Yeah. By summer, the papers were signed, and that's when she learned that her newly minted ex-husband had lied to her, and Jeannie no. was not pregnant. No, 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 no. Not pregnant. Oh, how mad was Betty? She was pretty mad. She was pretty mad. Apparently, she never really badmouthed Dean Martin about it, though. Like, So, obviously, they go on to get married, and they do have three children together. But yeah, Dean Martin totally... What a dog! Mm -hmm. Yeah, not going to defend that. Not going to defend that at all. What a dog, Dino. So maybe we would call the next bit karma, because it turns out that his manager had not been paying his taxes or royalties that were due to other artists. Oh, no. So suddenly, Dino's in court. They're like, the IRS is after him. There are... Like an old manager is suing him. like, And so then he's broke. He could not make his alimony and child support payments to Betty and the kids. So Betty has to take him to court as well. And this tax thing is a problem that will recur for him. Like he, oh. all of these people are awful with money because Dean Martin made many, 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 many millions of dollars over the course of his career. But 
he routinely was in trouble with the IRS and like I think he I think there were multiple bankruptcies. Yeah, like later the IRS actually seizes Betty's house because a joint tax return they had filed together had some inconsistencies. So, and Dean was broke with all this other stuff going on, oh, so he no. couldn't float her the money to Yeah, so she loses her house. So they move into another home. Betty was a big entertainer during this period. I think she probably viewed herself as a socialite because when he was paying alimony, she was getting like $3,500 a month. Oh, wow. In, yeah, 1950 what? or whatever. Yeah, big money. Big money. So she's, you know, she had a great time in Vegas. Oh, I bet. And just <laughs> she just brought the party home. So, Fantastic. Yeah. So their their house is like, it's... It's a string of men. Uh, her drinking was so significant that it Oh, became... she really did bring the party home then. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh. No, it became a topic of, like, gossip columnists. Like, uh, Confidential. Right? That magazine? Yeah, Betty yeah. Dunn backslid. Well, it's not... I mean, she had never... They printed an open letter to Dean Martin about the conditions that his children were living in. Mm-hmm. This was extremely painful for Betty, who certainly did not see her life um, the way they described it, although um, I think they may have been onto something, because Dean's having babies with Jeannie, his partnership with Jerry is proceeding, and it will eventually crack up, and Betty's life is just spiraling downward, like losing the house. I think probably it just triggered a lot of insecurity. They moved back to Vegas for a minute. They moved back to Beverly Hills. They she's floundering. It's not good. OK, so we're going to we're going to park her there with the kids in a not good situation. And we'll talk a little about Martin and Lewis. Martin and Lewis lasted for 10 years to the day they had their their final show was the, their 10th anniversary show. Oh, wow. Um, their farewell performance. Early on, uh, their movie contract gave them $75,000 for each film and allowed them one independent film a year that they would make through their own production company. Jerry, in particular, loved directing. And this would, I think, ultimately, he began to view himself as a filmmaker, which I think added some tension. He was the artiste. Ah. Um, Martin and Lewis were by far the most popular act in America at the start of the 50s. And these two earned millions and millions of dollars through, like, I love this sort of all-channel approach. So they did live shows. They were on television. They were in the movies. They were on the radio. Like, it was every possible well, they were their way. Most, yeah, famous duo. They, in were, the... they were their own streaming service, basically. Yep. Um, they, they were content makers. Over time, the press got edgier in its... Coverage of the pair with just lavish praise heaped on Jerry's comedic skills while Dean's straight man routine was given shorter shrift. Like there was just, yeah. Meanwhile, and this is very interesting, Jerry idolized Dean from the day they met. In later interviews, he's got a a book called Dean and Me, A Love Story. Like he is not even shy about it, you know? He was. Jerry. Yeah, again, he's 10 years younger and Dean Martin. Yeah, yeah. In later interviews, he just outright says that he fell in love with Dean when they first met. Pretty sure that that's maybe more true than even he realized. Jerry just disliked Jeannie because he was jealous and wanted Dean for himself. The dynamics here became very difficult. 
Plus, both of these wildly popular performers had plenty of hangers-on, whispering that they'd be massive stars if the other one wasn't holding them back. Oh, All that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, not an unusual story at all. Meanwhile, Dean's roles in the movies that Martin and Lewis were making were getting less and less meaty as Jerry, who is now a much more mature comic, was kind of sliding into the feature. Yeah, so they started arguing bitterly. I think the last year of their partnership was was really, really unhappy. Huh. Um, they parted, like they parted on good terms, but they didn't speak socially for 20 years. Like they'd bump into each other at professional things, but they didn't. Like, they just didn't have a friendship for, like, 20 years after that. Their final appearance was at the Copacabana Club on July 25th, 1956, which was the 10th anniversary of their first show at the 500 Club with Skinny D'Amato. Wow. People were mad. People were heartbroken. These people, like, they were bigger than the Beatles, you know? Like, people would throng the streets when they had performances. They would... Just to accommodate the crowds, they would go out on fire escapes and tell jokes. Like, it, it 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 was a phenomenon. It was a sensation. And people were really, really upset that they split up. So Dean's career took a real hit. His first post-Martin and Lewis movie tanked. He was still, he could still make a living as a recording artist, so he focused there for a while. He and Jeannie had their third child, Gina. And uh, his first family was in sort of a state. So they're always moving again because Betty was drinking heavily and was terrible with money, which Dean is as well. At one point, she takes the kids over to her sister's house, drives away, does not come back. (gasps) Three days later, the aunt drove the kids to Dean's house and was like, hey, here's some of your kids. Here's some of your kids. (laughs) Don't know where mom is. I don't know what to do here. And uh, this is when the family learns that Dean Martin has hired a private detective who's been keeping an eye on the children for some time. This is very weird. A few weeks later, in November 1957, Dean and Jeannie officially filed for custody. Now, what's strange about this is that these kids have apparently not been going to school for some time. Like, they've been totally truant. Betty has just folded in on herself, apparently. And Dean Martin's had a private investigator following them around. Like, he should know this, but he took no steps to address it until Betty's sister made it his problem. Like, it's very strange to me. Like, there are a lot of things about Dean Martin that make me think that he's a very committed father, and then there's other stuff that... What's wrong with you? Get your kids in school. Yeah, yeah. So Betty checked herself into rehab... The first of three attempts at that, and apparently none of them ever really took. Oh. And she, yeah, I don't think her life was very happy. That's, this is really unfortunate. It is. It is. So now there were seven Martin kids all living under one roof, and Dean's movie career began to rehabilitate. In 58, he co-stars with Sinatra, and some came running. I imagine they had already met, given that they're both singers and oh, whatever. Sure. Yeah, 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 I'm sure they'd met. But uh, they became great friends. Nancy Sinatra Jr. said they even did the the blood brother thing where you cut yourself and shake hands. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Seriously, everything back then was very childlike, wasn't it? (laughs) It's a different time. (laughs) 
Yeah, and Sinatra actually engineered Martin and Lewis's reconciliation after their 20-year... Um, yeah, they played at the Sands at a Jerry Lewis telethon. That's exactly... Yep. yep, Sinatra was performing at... Okay, so Jerry Lewis... Uh, I think they started the telethons when they were Martin and Lewis and Jerry Lewis stayed with it. Jerry Lewis has raised billions of dollars Mm -hmm. for that organization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So in um, 1976, Sinatra is performing at a muscular dystrophy telethon. That's hard to say. When, you know, he's just like, hey, I've got a friend I want to bring out and out steps Dean and there's a hug and the audience went nuts. (laughs) <laughs> the band's back together. It was a really, it's a At nice moment. one night only. Yeah, yeah it, it was a nice moment. Yeah, and then after this, again, they have not so much as picked up the phone to call each other for 20 years. Um, they became like daily contact friends from then on. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Dino really just is complicated as a family man. Jeannie had made clear early on that she wanted her family to have dinner together every night. So when Dean was in L.A., he was home for dinner every night. Like, he was not a party animal. He was not out on the town carousing. It's very weird. Uh, His evolution into the boozy lounge singer was more caricature than reality, but he certainly enjoyed the good life, including women, despite being married. In 1969... True to form. Oh, no. He tells Jeannie that he's met someone else and fallen in love. Wants a divorce. Jeannie gave it to him. Afterwards, they did not speak for a decade. But again, they put some kind of friendship back together later and they would have dinners together on Saturdays. Wow. Mm -hmm. So for, for Dina's book, Jeannie told her, I married him knowing nothing about him. I divorced him 23 years later. And I still knew nothing about him. Huh. <laughs> okay, so Jeannie... Isn't that funny to say? Yeah, Jeannie got $6.5 million in the settlement, which uh, made it the most expensive divorce in history at the time. <gasps> Dean married one more time to a woman named Kathy Hahn in 1973, who uh, kind of tragically was like his daughter's age. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah, they were having group birthday parties or something i get older and they just stay the same age yeah i get the feeling kathy was not super popular with the kids partly because some of them were older than her like mm -hmm. Mm -mm. yeah so that marriage lasted just three years they did not have kids and also it's possible that kathy shot him and that that's what prompted him to divorce her so yeah dina recounts in the book that uh there was a news alert that dean martin had been shot so she calls his manager in a panic of course and is like oh my god what's happening and the manager's like nothing everything's fine and she's like but the news said he's been shot and the manager's like well he was he was cleaning his gun and it <gasps> and it went off and she was like he was cleaning his gun with bullets in it and it was apparently a flesh wound on his hand it was just he was grazed by a bullet basically but six days later, he filed for divorce from Kathy. Um, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So not clear. Oh, my. Not quite clear there. Um, and apparently the kids never did learn what settlement she got, but she did keep a nice big house in Malibu. Those are kind of the trashy divorces of Dean Martin. Wow. Icon. 
legend. That was an amazing story. I thought <laughs> fake pregnancy was going to be the big rub, the <laughs> flamingo Vegas divorce. And no, now gunshot wound. Gunshot wound. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's like a rat pack full of trash cans. It's, it's a lot. I mean, the guy, the guy is trashy. It weirdly conflicted approach to how he deals with family, like wants to be committed, but isn't, I don't even know. That is a complicated man and yep. an interesting story. <laughs> so, uh, fire escape walk filled with trash cans of bloody tape from your knuckles <gasps> that you can't afford. <laughs> Lined with flamingo casino chips. Bada boom. There you go. I, I don't know. Yeah. That's yeah. a lot of trash candy right there. Vegas divorce, fake pregnancy, gunshot. That story has everything. Little bit. Neglected kids. Bankruptcies. Alcoholism. Uh-huh. Yeah. That story has everything. Homes getting seized by the IRS. Whew. Okay. Let's shake that off. Take a break. And... uh <laughs> I think I got everything in just a very different way coming up. Okay, cool. Hopefully the pets will be better behaved for the second half. Good Lord, see you on the flip. Hey, Trash Pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia, It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. All right, Alicia, I see the uh, Dean Martin trash baggery has beaten back your resolve on dry February. I, um, I now mere, have a... A mere 14 hours into... Uh... Yep. Trash candy cocktail <laughs> poured. <laughs> Having a glass of wine. 
little rosé for the palate. I have such a good story this week. Sammy Davis Jr. Mm-hmm. Sagittarius baby. Okay. Born December 8th, 1925 at the Harlem Hospital. He lives at the intersection of 140th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Dad, Sammy Davis Sr., is a black performer, Baptist. Sammy's mom is a Puerto Rican Catholic performer. They meet on the circuit there, right? Interesting. Okay. Sammy Davis Jr. is literally born into it all. He is on stage. He enters his first amateur contest at the age of three and wins $10 for singing. I love the name of this song. I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal you. (laughs) Okay. His uncle, who who is not his uncle, it's his godfather, really, a guy named Will Mastin, and Sammy Sr. put little Sammy Jr., and now they're a trio. They're the Will Mastin trio. And, like, little Sammy is talented AF, and he's getting work in, like, tiny short films and stealing the show oh, from really? bigger black stars. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, the astounding part to me in these little reels that happen, explain this to me, America, they're putting Sammy Davis Jr. in blackface to do these films. It's all weird. It's very, it's very weird. So as a child, mom and dad split. Sammy goes with dad and the Will Mastin trio. His, Sammy's sister goes with his mom. Oh, okay. also interesting. Okay. So Sammy and the Will Mastin trio, he's part of the trio. Now they're mm-hmm. off to the races. Sammy Davis Jr. will cross... The United States 10 times back and forth by the time he's 10 years old. Jeez. So the Will Mastin Trio are on this thing called the Chitlin Circuit. So our Jewish friends have their borscht belt Mm -hmm. in the Catskills. Our black friends have this thing called the Chitlin Circuit, which operates all through the country. Black performers, this is a way for them to get to your town. It is this migration of musicians who are traveling through... The U.S. oftentimes is segregated South. And like your world may be pretty crappy through the week with sharecropping and whatever you're doing. But you know there's going to be a show in town that weekend. And that's the ticket. Everyone plays on this circuit. Count Basie, Chubby Checker, Ike and Tina, Mm -hmm. James Brown, Little Richard, Ray Charles, Cab Calloway. Like the weekends are lit in whatever performers coming to. Okay. So this is Sammy's start touring the country with these other black performers and seeing community after community of black towns across our country. Like it's horrifying to say black people are using this thing called the green book to get around. It is a travel companion for people of color to let them know what towns are safe. When you need to be out of a town, like sunset towns, where you can stay when you go to a particular town, where you can eat, what's friendly, what will and won't get you killed. This is 70 years ago, Stacey. Uh, Yeah. I just want to put that in perspective. Yeah, it's in our parents' lifetimes uh, in some cases. Yeah. So Sammy on the road, he's been performing since he was three. He does not get one day in his life of formal education. Wow. Doesn't spend one day in school. Sammy will say as an adult that he does resent that. He's like, I'm not a great reader. I'm not a great speller. I'm 
None of like, but he's yeah. probably the least, the most talented and least educated of our Rat mm-hmm. Pack crew. So no formal schooling, but what Sammy does get, I mean, talented in every way from birth, Sammy gets an education from every one of those black performers that he meets on the Chitlin circuit. And little Sammy, like he's a sponge. He takes it all in. So all these performers are like, all right, littles, show me your stuff. And so Sammy does his stuff and they're like, hey, okay, what about this? And Sammy is graced and influenced by just an education you could not get at any other time. Yeah. This is Sammy's school Mm -hmm. and he's going to graduate top of his class. But let's think about the other side of this, which I think will impart with Sammy through his whole life. Like we've covered a few child stars already and trashy divorces. We're going to have more to cover, but I think there's this like internal instinctive thing that happens with child performers that they have to please everyone all the time. Right. I'm here to please. It is. I mean, it makes perfect sense. That imparts a certain type of thing that I think will carry through to future relationships. So Billy Crystal, in one of the bios I watched, it says this about him. Like, what goes on in the brain of a genius? Sammy has this, like, flow and rhythm. Where does that come from? It's not taught. It just is. It is practiced and honed and improved and becomes a statement of who you are. And y'all, Sammy's an entertainer. But he's also black and the world is heavily segregated. But that's not the battle that he's going to fight now. It's time for World War II. And Sammy's off to fight. And he lands in one of the first integrated companies in the war. Oh, well, that's good. No. It's not good. It doesn't go great for Sammy. Uh, The white soldiers essentially make his life hell. They break his nose multiple times. They pee in his beer. They pee on him. One night they get him and paint him in white paint with some really rotten epitaph words on him and this is simply like just degrade yeah it it is degrading it is super super bad and sammy goes into the shower and he's washing that paint off and scrubbing in the shower and he's like never again i can become so big that i can transcend all of this you may hate me because i'm black but you're gonna love me as an entertainer and by god he's gonna do it After the war, he comes back with the Will Mastin trio. And Sammy's always done impressions of black people. But one of the ways that he flipped around in the military and that he didn't get beat up was was doing impressions for black and white soldiers of white people. So he can do Humphrey Bogart and James Cagney and Jimmy Stewart. And so Sammy's now back with the Will Mastin trio. And uh, Sammy starts busting out all of his, you know, his white impressions for the audience that mm-hmm. night. And Will Mastin and Sammy Sr. are like, no. And the crowd loves it. Like, they have never seen, nobody has ever or will ever, like, Sammy just continues to up his game all right. the time. No, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there was real risk in, oh, for so a, much. a black performer to, appear to be mocking um, a famous white person. I'm sure that was 
But super risky. mocking. Like even Humphrey Bogart after this is like, hey, uh, Sammy, let me tell you why I make that particular tell. Because Sammy, uh, Humphrey Bogart wipes his mouth, but because he's on pills. So there's always like a little white foam. So one of Humphrey Bogart's consistent tells where he wipes around his mouth is simply a medical. Like, mm-hmm. Okay. But they get Sammy back, Junior, in the dressing room. And Sammy Sr. is like, <laughs> you have got no business impersonating white people, son. And Sammy's like, mm, I'm going to be the biggest and the best entertainer who ever lived. So Sammy legit is always in school, his school. He is learning from everyone. He doesn't stop when he's little. He does it all the time. He takes it in and he pushes it right back out. And he takes all of these influences, integrates it all into his own. Like he just exudes joy. I. Okay. I'm such a fan. Okay. Y'all, I promise we're getting to his marriages and trashy divorces. (laughs) (laughs) But this story, y'all. Okay. March of 1951. The location. Ciro's in Hollywood. The Will Mastin trio is playing. And Sammy steals the show. The bill, it's a $2 cover charge. And Jerry Lewis is there in the audience taking notes and giving them to Sammy after the show. Hmm. Like in helpfulness. Like here's where you can get Mm -hmm. even better than what you're doing because what you're doing is killing it. But wait for it. Okay. All the Will Mastin trio needs is a tight 20. They're the opening act. They go on for an hour and 15 minutes because the crowd won't let them stop. Sammy this night does a 30-foot knee slide across the stage. He is playing every instrument on the stage, every single instrument on the stage. He's singing. He's dancing. He's doing impressions. And nothing like it has ever been seen. Whoa, baby. Eddie Cantor, who is a big fucking actor deal, like back in the 20s and 30s, now has this thing called the Colgate Hour. Yeah, the Colgate Comedy Hour. That's it. He's blown away, and he invites Sammy and the Will Mastin trio on. This is 1951. Mm-hmm. Blacks are not visible on television in 1951. This is groundbreaking. Sammy's riding high, right? Until 1954. He's in a super bad car accident. Almost dies. Doesn't die, but does lose his left eye. Jerry Lewis, again, immediately gets on a plane. Doesn't leave Sammy's side for a week. Something pretty instrumental happens when Sammy's in the hospital. Sammy is a son of a Baptist and a Catholic, gets converted to Judaism. There's a rabbi in the hospital that comes to visit. And Sammy just sees a kinship in the plight of the Jewish people and the plight of the black people. And Sammy will say as in a, like later in life, like as a performer, all of that is intangible. You need something to hold on to. And he finds it within mm-hmm. Judaism. I also thought this was kind of sweet. His big buddy, Frank Sinatra, is uh, going to have Sammy at his house in Palm Springs for a long time doing physical therapy. Hmm. Let's walk. Let's walk around the pool. It takes Sammy two years to pour a glass of water. He loses his eye. He's the most talented performer. Now he's got to learn everything over. How to balance, how to move. Like an accident like this will restructure your whole life. Oh, sure. Well, and losing depth perception, if you're going to be on stages and stuff, that could be depth perception, your balance, your everything about the way your brain works because it's tied to your senses. Mm -hmm. Gone. 
Sammy restructures his whole life, and by God, if he is not playing at Ciro's again in 1955, the pictures from this night are extraordinary. There's Frank Sinatra, there's Tony Curtis, there's Isabella Rossellini, there's Milton Berle. Marilyn Monroe is going to host the after party. Wow. It's fucking triumphant. Okay, so Sammy is doing great. Singing, dancing, riding high, doing some acting to come back. But hey, Alicia, we're here for the trashy divorces. <laughs> so Sammy is a two-time divorcee. Uh, Sammy likes ladies, all kinds. If you're good looking, you are automatically Sammy Davis Jr.'s type. He is an equal opportunity lover. Honey's never hard to get if you're Sammy Davis Jr. But for the first time in the late 50s, Sammy is going to fall in love with a very pretty, very blonde, very white actress named Kim Novak. This sounds like something that would be socially acceptable. Once Sammy sees Kim Novak, he is he's come undone. Now, Kim Novak. She had that effect on people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's about to be in vertigo with mm-hmm. uh, Hitchcock, right? And she sees Sammy perform in Chicago. Their eyes connect. Sammy has to have her. So matchmakers here in this situation are Tony Curtis and Janet Lee. That's so nice. Who have friends over for, oh, just a few friends for dinner. But of course it's arranged. And Sammy's there and Kim is there and... It's on, and there's a blind item that happens in a gossip column after this that outs them. So, Stacy, to your point, it is 1957. An interracial marriage is not legal in two-thirds of the states. Yeah. At the time, <clears throat> when Americans were polled, a whopping 4% of Americans support interracial marriage. Oh, That's God. just shameful, y'all. And Kim Novak is a bombshell. <sighs> And Harry Cohn of Columbia can't stand Rita Hayworth. And he wants to replace Rita Hayworth. And he has been grooming Kim Novak for years to be the new Rita Hayworth, even though one's right, they're not similar at all in type, but right. his hatred for Rita Hayworth is pretty, pretty big. And okay. Then this gossip item comes out. And Sammy goes to Kim, and he's like, I'm so sorry. And Kim's like, no studio owns me. Like, do what I want. Come over. I'm going to make spaghetti and meatballs for you. And he does. And the love affair's on. Okay? But they're hiding it. Like, FBI-style hiding it. In order to get to her house, he hides under blankets to get driven into the... Like, this is stupid. Sammy will even set up a private line at the Sands Hotel so he can talk to Kim without it having to go through the switchboard. Wow. Mm-hmm. So talk heats up and the rumors are now, because in California it is legal, that they have a marriage license. And Harry Cohn finds out, hits the roof, literally hits the roof so much he suffers from his first heart attack. Oh, wow. Hits the roof. Survives. He's having fits. He's got to kill this relationship or something. And Harry Cohn has ties with the mob. Oh. And, uh, okay, so our Harry Cohn. Our good Cone, friends the our mob. good friends the mob. Harry Cohn and Johnny Roselli, who is a big-time mobster over on the other side, have matching pinky rings. Oh. Harry Cohn takes out a hit oh, on Sammy chic. Davis Jr. Takes that hit Whoa. on him. Oh. Kill him. Kill him. So Mickey Cohen 
gangster friends everywhere, helps to have him. Mickey Cohen calls Sammy Davis Sr., his dad, like, Sammy Sr., yeah. this is bad. This is a bad scene. There's a hit out on Junior. Holy shit. So Sammy Sr. calls Sammy Jr., and Sammy Jr. calls his other buddy gangster friend, Sam Giancana. Oh, my God. And Sam Giancana's like, I can protect you in some cities, friend, but I can't protect you in Hollywood. There's a little bit of a negotiation period. And uh, Harry Cohen's like, all right, if you marry a black girl in 48 hours, I won't kill you. Sammy No Fool will be married in a hot minute for the first time to oh a gal God. named Lorraine White. She sings over at the Silver Slipper in Las Vegas. And she's a friend. She and Sammy have gone on a few dates. He's 32. She's 23. But quickie style Las Vegas time. Sammy, I've heard two quotes here, will pay her $10,000 or $25,000 to do this. They have a quickie wedding. Harry Belafonte's there. Sammy becomes so drunk and enraged this first night that he tries to strangle Lorraine. Oh, my God. So not a great start to the How is this her marriage. fault? It's not. It's not. This is how upset... Yeah. He's in love with Kim Novak. Yeah, he no, is I, going I, to be killed and like Yeah. It no, is, I I I recognize that this is honestly just an insane situation, but this still is 60 years ago, America. 60 years ago to our greatest black entertainer. I it, shameful. Okay, shameful is trying to kill your wife on the first night that's bad it's all of it so bad. they get married january 1958 by september divorce proceedings or in mm-hmm. like it was never right once the it mob was a it marriage was to stay alive yeah right? yeah yeah once harry Cohn like cools down a little okay so what happens next 1959 divorced sammy is chilling having some lunch at 20th century fox and in walks the very tall very lovely very blonde very Swedish, my Brit. And Sammy is, it's Kim 2.0. He's head over heels in love again. Mai is 26. And she is filming a remake of The Blue Angel. Like she's, she's a, like H.O.T. They begin dating. They like each other. This is boy meets girl. Girl likes boy. They like each other. Boy proposes. Girl accepts. And as a Swede, she does not realize the yeah. shitstorm that is about to happen. It is 1960. Jack Kennedy is running. The Rat Pack, right, is on in June of 1960. Sammy and Mai announce their engagement, and oh, fuck. The studio immediately cancels her contract. Oh, my God. She's of no use to us anymore. We can't have right, this we, happen. We, yeah, we can't market you if you, as a white person, marry a black person. That is just so miserable. Hold up. It gets worse. So Sammy Davis at the time is in London performing. So a whole slew of British fascists show up to picket his performance. Seriously. Mm-hmm. Sammy gets back to America and hates coming from both sides. White people hate him. Black people hate him. The American Nazi Party is Proud Boys Why picketing not? his shows as well. Uh, death threats they're getting. Sammy and Mai have to hire 24-hour armed guards. 
Sammy will carry a gun with him or a knife in the top of his cane. It's horrible. They do get married. Before the election, the Jack Kennedy asked them to please get not get married until after the election. Because you're ruining it. Sammy Davis goes on stage 20 times for Jack Kennedy in the election right, year. Campaigning for him. Hey, if you could just not marry her before the election, that'd be great. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I mean, I actually understand the political science he was employing there, though. Like, do not activate white identity. Uh, so It gets, oh God, it gets so much worse. Okay, look, hold on. So Sammy and I have a daughter. They'll adopt two sons. Mai's career is done. She's focusing on her family. They have armed guards everywhere they go. Sammy focuses on his career, like not really marriage and fatherhood. They are going to continue to live under threat pretty much their whole marriage. That's awesome. Which will last eight years. They divorce in 1968 because it's just too fucking much for her. Yeah, you think? Well, there's his travel and the booze and the spending, plus his affair with a gal named Lola Falana. My Brit is done. Mm. Swede out. Ouch. It won't take Sammy too long to find love again, this time to a dancer that he will meet when he appears on Broadway a few years previously in this uh, play called Golden Boy. Her name is Altaviz Gore. This marriage will not end in divorce, even though there's a whole lot more about her. Sammy will die five days after their 20th wedding anniversary, May 16th, 1990, at the age of 64. So Sammy in his lifetime will break so many barriers. Like, Mm -hmm. dude has more talent in his little toe than any of those other Rat Packers on stage, and they're all pretty talented. There's so much more to the story and how it intersects with all the tremendous work he does for the civil rights movement. He is in Washington. He's at Selma. He donates and raises funds for Dr. King. When Dr. King is arrested, he calls Sammy and Sammy puts up the bond every time. Sammy Davis Jr. is Mr. Wonderful and a legend too. And we're not done with him. Y'all, there's a whole lot more coming on Patreon when we are going to get into a little trashy politics this week on Ocean's Eleven. We're going to talk about 1960 and a whole lot of trash is about to go down with Jack Kennedy because Jack Kennedy is going to fuck over Frank Sinatra, Peter Lawford, and Sammy Davis pretty much all within the same year period. So join us on Wednesday for that. Give you a little hint on the drop in here. Sammy and Mai, because they're married are invited to the White House or to the inauguration party that Frank Mm -hmm. Sinatra is hosting when Kennedy does get elected. And thanks for all your hard work and Mm -hmm. come to this party. And Sammy has a new suit made and Mai has a Balenciaga gown made and they're disinvited three days before that party. Dean Martin was so enraged by that that he didn't go to the inauguration. Oh, good for Dean. Mm -hmm. Good job, Dino Martini. Actually, he said that if Sammy wasn't going, he wasn't going. I don't. I don't, maybe he did go anyway, but he was apparently incensed on behalf of his friend. Yeah, we're going to talk about 1960. We're going to talk about Sammy Davis in 1972 and Nixon. We're going to talk a little bit about Reagan, too. We got a lot of fun politics this week. I mean, if I could make one suggestion 
from your story. If you are a person who finds yourself on the same side of a topic as, say, the American Nazi Party, maybe you need to reevaluate that topic and your feelings. <laughs> just a thought, just a little PSA from us to you. So those are the trashy divorces of Sammy Davis Jr. I don't even know how to assign trash can ratings here. Fake Vegas wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, well, to save his life. Jesus Christ. Interracial strut. Like a field full of trash cans with KKK robes set on fire. Like I'm sure. Mad about it. Yeah, I'm sure that Sammy Davis was plenty trashy, but it really sounds like he was just in a trashy world. <laughs> Yeah, he's totally in a trashy world. So here's <clears throat> when my Brit and Davis are first married, there's a the Sammy Davis biographer. He and his wife are sharing a hotel suite in Miami with my and Sammy and Martin Luther King is there. He's come to visit. And Boyer, the biographer, says, Martin, where are we racially? And Sammy Davis interjects and says, I'll tell you where I am. I'm in the best suite in this hotel, but I can't walk down the street with my wife. King replies with the words of a slave preacher who he would later quote in a speech to the New York Civil War Centennial Commission in 1962 and says, we ain't what we ought to be. We ain't what we want to be. We ain't what we gonna be. But thank God we ain't what we was. And there's a lot of truth in that. But I don't think it's anywhere anywhere close to where we need to be and should be. And for as much as the world has changed in 70 years, it hasn't changed all that much. Let's do better, y'all. For love's sake. We all deserve it. I haven't cried in a minute. No. I didn't know I was going to do that. Seriously. Stay in love. <clears throat> Every human deserves love in whatever way they want it. Just be cool, people. Be cool. You okay? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <clears throat> the more things change, the more they stay the same. I think we can do better. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we can. We can do better. You know who makes us better? Our trashy divorces listeners. It's true. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in and for yet another week. Putting us in your ear holes. We're amazing. It. Y'all are the best. We will return next Sunday. Oh, we got a good lineup next Sunday. We're going to go back to an older and a newer one. Uh, thanks, Stacy, for playing this week so we could get uh, these guys covered for no, the rest of our Wednesday series. Very welcome. I really enjoyed this week. Yeah. And if, if you need more, we rabbit hole all week long on Patreon. Oh, that's for sure. Patreon.com slash Trashy Divorces. Yeah, if you if you like us on Sunday, you'll love us Monday through Friday over there. Yep. Hey, thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. Y'all are the very best. Until we talk next time. Keep it trashy. Oh, so, so trashy. Flamingo divorce fake. But, no. Yeah, not like 1960s trashy. Red, ha- red sombrero hat trashy. Like anti-racist Boom. trashy. With a red sombrero hat. With a red sombrero. Done. Cheers, friends. Have a great week. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, 
with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all.